Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Right now, Jared Bernstein joins us to say he's member of the White House Council of Economic Advisors for President Biden, barely describes his public service to liberals and conservatives. He is one of the liberal economists that conservatives are forced to read. They've been doing that for decades with his work in Washington, and he joins us now representing, of course, the Biden administration. Jared, can you apply stimulus in a narrow enough way to help those so beleaguered in this economy? Sure we can. Uh, In fact, much of what's in the American Rescue Plan is targeted at those at the bottom leg of this K-shaped recovery, meaning that this is a a recovery where many folks never missed a paycheck, uh, were able to work from home and and so on, while so many others uh, were stuck bearing the brunt of the pandemic and the economic crisis. For example, we expand a child tax credit, make it fully refundable. According to a Columbia Poverty Analysis Group, this reduces child poverty by 50%. That's some pretty top shelf targeting from my perspective. Uh, We have a history here of decades of what I'm gonna call Lockean individualism. John Taylor of Stanford, clearly a conservative economist, shows the value, Jared Bernstein, of automatic stabilizers Mm. that benefit all of us where the haves are benefited by the stabilization of the have-nots. Explain in this natural disaster how the haves will benefit by stimulus for the have-nots. Yeah, no, I think, first of all, one uh, thing to recognize is that our automatic stabilizers often shut off too quickly. So one of the things we ought to do, and it's a problem that we've had, it's one of the reasons why the American Rescue Plan is so urgent, because we've had these kinds of air pockets created by the kind of wait and see what happens next so we get behind the curve. What we need to do is make sure our automatic stabilizers are kicking in with the alacrity that we need them to. That's embedded in this plan. Yeah, look. This is a matter of, uh, you know, if GDP is a spectator sport for half the economy, uh, it, it's simply not going to achieve the goals of the Biden-Harris administration. So we have to start building the policy architecture, the the kind of connective tissue that reconnects GDP growth to the prosperity of all with an especial sensitivity to racial equity. And that's in this plan It's also in the uh, more broad Building Back Better plan that's coming later. So, Jared, let's get to those two issues and draw a distinction here. There's aid and then the stimulus. Is this just the aid package package and the stimulus package is coming later? I definitely think of this much more in terms of relief, uh, at least initially, than stimulus in the sense of uh, there are a lot of people who can't go back to work until... Uh, you know, it's safe to go back in the water. So one of the key parts, of course, of the rescue plan, I heard you guys talking about the European Union, they've had great trouble with this, and it's reflected in their economy, uh, is to uh, not only control the virus, but produce and distribute the vaccine in in, in a way that is obviously much more driven by science, much more organized, has a much clearer federal presence than was heretofore the case. The connection, as I'm sure your team well knows, between controlling the virus, distributing the vaccine, and finally launching launching a robust recovery is extremely tight, and we cannot drop the ball on that. That's where President Biden is coming from. That's why the urgency of acting now is so acute for him. So let's talk relief to stimulus. We understand the relief part. 
We've talked about this bill many times. What does the stimulus bill down the road look like, Jared? You know, I guess I wouldn't think of it so much as a stimulus bill. I think down the road, uh, with the help of the uh, the rescue plan, the economy should be moving uh, in the direction we need it to. I think, again, this gets to the point I was making a second ago. It's not enough to have GDP growing a trend. We have to make sure that it's reaching people who've heretofore been left behind. So now we're talking about more structural changes to the economy, standing up a childcare sector that's really never existed in this country to give give parents a chance to get into the job market if that's what they want to do. Uh, finally, taking a, a real stab at clean energy, making sure that we deal with the kind of racial inequities that have plagued this economy so long in the era of housing and, and criminal justice, for example. That's the kind of broader, more structural change. I think you have to distinguish between cyclical and structural. And I think the latter is more of a structural uh, uh, approach. So in order to get there, what's more important for the economic recovery, $1,400 checks to each family or local and uh, state aid? You know, this is just, we just can't do either or in this case. And I think that's a good example because, you know, we are in a, a, a set of discussions with uh, Republicans who, you know, in many cases, very much share the urgency that we do, but sort of want to take a different route to get there. And I think the key to the uh, rescue plan, as, as the president has articulated, is that it really is calibrated to meet all the various different needs that we face right now. Families are struggling. They need those checks, which, by the way, we just got Paul data, clocking in at about 75% approval. Uh, but the state and local sector has to get help to reopen schools and to finally distribute the, va uh, distribute the vaccine, control the virus, and put COVID-19 behind us. Jared, how important is it to push as much as possible into this bill due to the lack of consensus, the lack of any kind of agreement between Republicans and Democrats on the Hill to get some of those structural changes through that you're talking about, especially if there isn't the onus on getting economic growth? You know, I, I got to say, I think that the, uh, the bipartisan support for uh, this, kind of, uh, this kind of relief is actually much broader than you might think. Now, there's the Hill. That's one thing. And I, I get what you're saying. But in fact, uh, again, these polling results show that something like two thirds of the American people support uh, the uh, president's approach uh, with the majority of Republicans. Uh, but it's also if you look at the business roundtable, the Chamber of Commerce, folks you have on your show, they support this plan. If you look at Republican mayors across the land, they support this plan. Uh, Trump's former chief economist, Kevin Hassett, Glenn Hubbard, Bush's former chief economist, they support the plan. So it's it's a much broader sense of, of of the urgency of the relief. And I think what we're arguing about in Washington are a set of details that, you know, they're important to policy wonks like me and you. But for the American people, uh, they just need to get get relief out there uh, you know, as soon as as soon as possible. Jared, I don't mean to be flippant about it, but you'd expect the approval rating for checks from the government going out to individuals to be high anyway, wouldn't you? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think that that doesn't mean it's a bad thing. <laughs> In other words, this is a time when uh, I think we really have to look at the kinds of <clears throat> shortfalls Americans are facing. You know, these checks have gotten a lot of flack. If you look at a family with uh, $75,000, for example, many of these folks have saving savings rates. This is not well known. I looked at this the other day. If you look at uh, people who have zero or near zero savings rates, you get pretty quickly up to income levels around 75, even higher. 
Now, many of these folks are engaged in mortgage moratoria or rent uh, uh, temporary, not uh, rent moratoria. That means that they are accumulating significant debt. At some point, when these moratoria and uh, yep. and, and forbearance on mortgages uh, uh, end, these families are going to face massive debts. So the idea that some of this uh, some of some of these direct payments are saved and not spent initially is actually a feature, not a bug. What we've seen in earlier rounds is that they're initially saved, and then when these families hit an air pocket, they're they're, they're spent. And there are middle class families yeah. who are struggling here. Jared, one final question. You and I have known each other for years. I've always asked this question of people when a new president is minted. A president has you into the Oval Office or around a table. He's sitting on the couch. And there is a way any given president takes in economic data, economic advice, economic perspective. What is the Biden method in the Oval Office? It's a great question. Uh, he sits in a chair. We sit on a couch. And what he does is he asks us our economic advice and he absorbs it through what I think of as kind of a political a political economy filter. That is, he, he's, he's not looking to me to give him political advice. Uh, once when I did so, he reminded me that I couldn't be elected dog catcher. I mean, he did it in a nice <laughs> way. <laughs> um, so he's very, you know, uh, Joe Biden has, has just really sharp political antenna. And, you know, he knows what he knows, he knows what he doesn't know. So he comes to us for political advice. And then he thinks through the political machinations to get to the economic place uh, that meets his vision. Jared, final question from me. And I've sort of got to talk about this. Do you think $75,000 for a family isn't enough in America in 2021? You know, I think it's hard to say a blanket statement like that, but I can tell you this. There are lots of families with that income level who have struggled to make ends meet, to keep roofs over their head, to yeah. meet not only their basic needs, but to meet their aspirations, to send their kids to college, to pay for affordable childcare. Yeah. And as you know, it's not just the level, it's the derivative. So, you know, families who are at that level and they're stuck at that level, even though they're working hard, the economy's increasingly productive, they see the stock market going up, they see wealth accumulation. You know, we know that the bottom half of families have, have almost zero in terms of equity in, in, in the Agre stock market. Agreed, Jared. So, Just to jump so, in, because we only have about a couple of minutes and I need to get this follow-up in. As a family growing up, there were years where we had far less than that. So believe me, I understand what you're talking about here. But this goes beyond pandemic relief. You're talking about a real ideological shift in the role of government. And if you want bipartisan agreement down in D.C., that's a big ask, isn't it, Jared? I mean, it isn't. It isn't. I mean, I, I think that the role of government has to be to provide opportunities for uh, not just low, but for middle and upper middle class families to get ahead, for them to reap some of the benefits of the productivity that they're helping to generate. They're helping to bake a bitter, bigger pie. They should get bigger slices, you know, whatever their income level is. Uh, but the problem is that those bigger slices have only been going to the narrow top, top one, top five percent. So I think the key here is partially the levels. And we talked about that families being able to meet their aspirations. But the idea that if you're playing by the rules, you ought to get ahead. And again, I think that policy architecture, that connective tissue has been torn over the years by policies that's been very insensitive to those in the middle class and down. And we're trying to we're, we're going to try to fix that. Jared, I look forward to continuing the conversation with you. We appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. Jared Bernstein there, 
of the White House Council of Economic Advisers. Joining us now from Jared Bernstein and the Biden administration, the academic William Dudley joins us. Of course, his work at Goldman Sachs for years and then at the New York Fed. We're thrilled that Bill Dudley could uh, join us writing for Bloomberg Opinion uh, today. Bill Dudley, I, I look at where we are in the greater theme of things, and there's going to be a point now, maybe a point in the future, where the day-to-day -day work of the Fed to support the economy is over and they begin to pull away from the monthly fundings that they're doing. They pull away from the, the jargon and the speeches of providing ultra accommodation. Are we close to that moment? No. Uh, the Fed basically has told us that, Chair uh, uh, Paul has said, it's premature to be talking about uh, even beginning to, you know, wind down the rate of asset purchases. So the Fed is uh, not probably not going to do anything different, uh, for, at least until late fall, uh, early next year. Well, I, that may be the policy as well. But then we go Fed meeting to Fed meeting. You've been in the crucible of this, Bill Dudley. Little sentences are given out in speeches from, say, Cleveland, from, say, Kansas City, from San Francisco, or from the pressures you faced at New York. Are we going to see theory come out in the speeches of federal uh, officers in the coming months? Well, it really depends on, you know, how strong the rebound in the economy is. I mean, what we're hoping is people get vaccinated. And once people get vaccinated, social distancing can be relaxed. Uh, uh, the economy can be reopened. And when that happens, the economy should accelerate pretty sharply because you're going to have a big increase in demand and uh, in the leisure and hospitality area in particular. People are going to go to movies, they're going to go to restaurants, they're going to travel. Uh, so that could be a pretty strong second half of the year if things go well. And I think at that point, then people will start at the Fed will start to, you know, begin to think about, OK, how do we start to uh, pull pull back? But the Fed doesn't want to pull back uh, prematurely because there's still nine million people that uh, are, have lost their jobs since the pandemic started. And so they don't want to pull back too early because they did. If they do, bond yields will go up, stock market goes down, that tightens financial conditions, and that makes it harder for the Fed to achieve its objectives. As we get closer to running the economy hot bell, there's a question of financial stability risks and how you measure it in a time of shadow banking, at a time of Robin Hood traders, at a time of other structural changes to the market. You put out a column about this. Do you think the Fed is gauging systemic risk correctly as they look forward to in perhaps hotter economy? Well, I think the problem that they have is that at some point they are going to have to turn the dial back uh, away from uh, you know, significant accommodation. And when they touch that dial or when they're perceived to about to touch that dial, markets are going to react. So I think it's going to be very difficult for the Fed to you know, avoid a, you know, a bond taper t tantrum. Uh, you know, you're either all in or you're not. And at some point the Fed is not going to be all in. And when that happens, uh, markets are going to react. In some of the risks that you put out there in this column that you wrote this morning for Bloomberg Opinion, you mentioned mutual funds and ways to protect against runs on these particular funds. Do you actually view this as a real viable risk going forward if there is some sort of taper tantrum like you're saying? Well, it depends on how violent it is. But, you know, the problem we have is we have mutual funds that invest in very illiquid asset classes like uh, high-yield debt. 
and yet we offer these mutual funds, and we, we basically tell people they, they can get their money out overnight. And you can't actually, if, and if a lot of people show up at that mutual fund to get their money back, uh, the market really can't absorb that much mutual you know, bonds being sold into the market. So it makes sense for illiquid mutual funds to basically tell people, no, you don't get overnight liquidity, you get weekly liquidity or monthly liquidity. Uh, and that gives the mutual fund manager time to actually liquidate their assets in an orderly way so that you don't have the fire sale of assets, which, which, which would obviously depress prices even further. Bill, an unfair question, but you know I'm legendary for that, so I'm going to go with it. John emails in from Capri and says, ask Dudley about Draghi. Bill Dudley, you would be on the short list of technocrats that would take over the American government if we were in <laughs> political crisis. We all know that. I mean, you, Secretary Yellen, Mr. Bernanke, Dr. Bernanke, and, and, and the rest. Bill Dudley, what is your perspective on what Draghi is being asked to do? How do guys like you turn into politicians? Is it doable? Well, uh, Mario Draghi is extraordinarily skilled, not just as an economist, but also as a, a diplomat. So he has, the, I think, the political skills to actually t- take a political position. You know, I think you saw that in terms of how he handled the uh, uh, European Central Bank uh, during the European crisis. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll do whatever it takes, and, that was, and it will be enough. And that was a very, very important statement. That showed, uh, I think, a lot of... Uh, sensitivity to the political side of things. So I think if he were, you know, put in power in Italy to try to, you know, be a party of unity, uh, I think he would be effective in that job. But that's partly because of who he is as a person, not because he's a former central banker. A paradigm shift. And Tom, Bill is absolutely right. If you think back when Trichet left and Draghi stepped up, Trichet had been hiking rates a couple of times over the previous few years. I think if my memory serves correct, 08, and I think again in 2011. And then Draghi came on board. And the idea of taking rates negative at the ECB, at a large central bank like that, wasn't really in the conversation at all, Tom. The idea of buying corporate credit wasn't really in the conversation. The idea of getting Germany to come Mm -hmm. along for the ride and buy sovereign debt, not part of the conversation. Bill, it was a paradigm shift. And I just wonder in your mind whether we have taken this too far at central banks? Well, we won't know for a while, uh, but clearly the central banks have done extraordinary things to support uh, economic activity uh, during an extraordinary pandemic. And how this plays out in the long run, you know, it's really, you know, as they say, too soon to tell. The economist in you, though, do you think you sacrifice the dynamism of an economy when the central bank takes a bigger role in the way it has done? <clears throat> Well, I do think we have to worry a little bit about, you know, very, very low interest rates, basically, you know, keeping companies afloat that probably shouldn't be afloat. You know, there's the so-called zombie companies, because that could actually interfere with the reallocation of, of capital from bad uses to better uses. Uh, so we'll have to see how it goes. I mean, the good news is the U.S. economy is pretty dy- dy- dynamic, uh, and so capital does sort of move to its best use. So I, I would say at this point, I'm not that worried about it. But, uh, you know, again, we've never done, we've never done this before. Uh, we don't have any experience in terms of what the recovery will actually look like. So I think it's really premature to be be, be able to say, oh, gee, I know this is going to work. Bill, just real quick here before we let you go, how do you view the GameStop saga that we've seen over the past couple of weeks? Was this evidence of froth? Well, I don't know. You know, I don't know if it was evidence of froth. I think it was bad judgment. I mean, 
you know, you really shouldn't buy assets when they're well above their, you know, intrinsic value. Uh, if you do that, you're probably going to lose money eventually because eventually there's going to be more sellers than buyers. I mean, to make money in GameStop when it's selling at $200, $300, $400 a share, the only way you're going to make money is if there's, if there's other people that come in behind you uh, to buy the stock at even, and push it to even higher levels. That seems like not a very uh, sound proposition when, when the, you know, the intrinsic value of the company is much lower. Bill, great to catch up. As always, come back soon. Bill Dudley there, Bloomberg Opinion columnist and former New York Fed president. The dirty little secret, folks, because the sell side is not only about price targets and enthusiasm about up here, down there, but it's about the density of the note. Thomas Forte is a D.A. Davidson and writes brilliantly thick notes about the details of a company. Tom Forte, thanks for joining us. I want to go right to your thoughts on third party where you notice this new dominance of third party. Explain to our audience why you have a persistent buy off the dominance of Amazon embracing in other sellers. So if you think about 2021 and the importance of third party sales on Amazon, it's more profitable when businesses and individuals sell products on Amazon than when Amazon sells the products itself. Additionally, I think it puts a lot of the antitrust heat off of the company. I still think there is very significant, but if you look at Tom, for example, when they reported their Black Friday, Cyber Monday sales, they focused on the amount of money third-party sellers made selling on Amazon, not Amazon itself. I think it's very important. Tom, this raises regulatory risk, though, in a big way. If you think about the big railway, railway barons, they were utilities, they were necessities. This becomes the same thing, the same argument that any company has to join forces with Amazon and use its infrastructure in order to get ahead. What kind of regulatory risk does this type of dominance create? The good news for Amazon in that regard is Walmart is starting to step up its game in terms of marketplaces. Uh, Target is still very well behind. So Amazon can show that there are now more marketplaces that sellers can offer their products on. But I do think the challenge for anti-competitive against Amazon is how can they prove consumer harm? How can they prove that this third-party effort by Amazon is raising prices to the consumer? And I think that'll be a challenge as far as antitrust action goes against Amazon. Tom, do you think Bezos stepping aside take some heat off them a little bit on the regulatory side? I think putting Andy Jassy, head of their largest services effort, AWS, instead of Jeff Wilkie, who announced his retirement last year and was head of retail, uh, does take some heat off. Because Amazon, again, can tell the story of we're enabling individuals and businesses to make money selling an Amazon rather than we're making all this money ourselves selling our own products. So, Tom, the optics shift is the strategy. The strategy does not shift. I think this was a declaration by Amazon that they're warmly embracing services. So I think about cloud computing services. Andy Jassy's led that effort since 2006 launch. I think about services in retail, enabling people to sell mm -hmm. on Amazon if they want delivery services, offering that <clears> to <throat> advertising services, and then healthcare in the future. Amazon Pharmacy, in my opinion, is only the beginning. Okay, well, let's, let's double-barrel this, Tom Forte. Pharmacy and advertising, 
nobody's talking about them. They're smaller, they're off the radar, they're single-digit rounding errors. How do they become double-digit success? Okay, so let's talk about healthcare. I look at two internal initiatives by the company, COVID-19 testing for employees and health clinics for employees' families. Those could eventually become customer-facing uh, broader initiatives. Advertising on Amazon is very important. They have their Roku-type service, IMDb TV. They have their streaming Thursday night football, and they have advertising within their e-commerce platform. And I think that'll continue to grow over time. Investors will look at Amazon and advertising the way we used to look at ABC, CBS, Fox, as far as a must-buy uh, for everyone, including retailers, to advertise on Amazon. You already see Kohl's advertising on Amazon, as an example. Meanwhile, going forward, there's a question of how much more of a threat Amazon is to the Microsofts, Oracles, Googles, given the fact that Andy Jazzy is likely to put that much more emphasis on AWS. Do you think that that threat is getting baked into markets, or do you think that people are kind of underplaying it right now? Excellent question, and the most important data point yesterday, other than Amazon reporting profits that were twice expectations, was the very significant operating loss Google reported for its cloud computing effort. So I do think that Microsoft is a real challenge for Amazon, but to the extent maybe that they can thwart off Google, that would be a huge long-term win for the company. You sticking at 39.50, Tom? Yes. All right. Just asking. Oh, don't let him out again. Just Come asking. on, Tom. Just Tom, asking. we need a price target raise right now. Seriously, Tom? Okay, Tom. Well, when the cash flow is higher, the price target will go up. <laughs> there we go. Unless they announce, unless they announce that something happens sales-wise over the last yeah. 24 hours, I don't have evidence of higher right. cash flow. We're asking everybody whose name is Tom. What do you think of Brady in the Super Bowl? Lisa's in love with him. What do you think? Oh my God. You're going to give Brady some love? I think that I respect Brady the way I respected Michael Jordan as a Chicago sports fan, uh, and never underestimate him. But Patrick Mahomes is amazing. And it breaks my heart the Chicago Bears picked Trubinsky over Mahomes. There we go. He nailed it. There you go. He just thank you, that. Tom. I mean, that's why 40 is just so large. Tom 40 at 39.50 on he Amazon. Tom, thank you. Joining us from DA Davidson, <clears throat> senior research analyst. Kristen Bitterly joins us now with Citigroup Private. She's been listening to all of this uh, talk here, and what it really comes down to is a rationalization of the walls of worry out there that drive a market higher. Kristen Bitterly, very simply here in your really bright note, you talk about the walls of cash, the hoard, the pile of cash that's out there. How big's the pile? Yeah, so this is, I mean, it's really interesting because we hear all these stories about kind of the exuberance in the market, retail investors pouring into the market. But one of the trends that we've been watching really closely is a lot of cash on the sidelines. We see this from our investors. And you can, there's really two things that I think are important to note when you're talking about some of the conservatism out there. So right now, it's about 15% of U.S. financial household assets are in cash. So when you go into different segments, this is up to 30% of certain portfolios held in cash. And what we're having, we're having conversations with our clients right now about strategic cash holdings. What do you need in terms of strategic cash? There isn't a right answer, as this is a very personal question. But what we're finding is people are basically taking that amount, that strategic amount, and multiplying it by 10 times. So when you add up right now the amount of cash sitting in money market funds across retail and institutional it gets you to around 25% of the S&P 500 market capitalization. 
So there is a lot of cash sitting on the sidelines that, quite honestly, has been a hangover from the global financial crisis. This is this is cash that has been out there for quite some time. And the savings rate has gone up and is about twice as much as the average over the past decade, I believe. I was just looking at some statistics this morning. Kristen, when your clients call you up and they say, yeah, we hear what you're saying about investing in riskier assets and stocks, and yet what just happened with GameStop? Does this indicate some sort of instability that could cause uh, broader ripples? What do you tell them? So I think there's two different things. I think one, we have to look at the state of the economy. And then two, we have to look at do fundamentals matter. So state of the economy, as you just mentioned, we have personal balance sheets are in good shape, right? So two times the average savings rate is what we saw last year. So around 15%. People have been restructuring their balance sheets. They've been refinancing mortgages. So you have the individual in a really good shape. And in terms of the economy, obviously the biggest risk is COVID, but we're anticipating rates of around 5% GDP growth over the next two years. And that is really remarkable. The other question is really around market volatility, right? So one is, are we in good shape from an economic standpoint, from a cash standpoint, from an individual standpoint? Yes. Do fundamentals matter? I think that's a resounding yes. But that does not mean that technicals don't drive the market in the short term. And now we have technicals to think about in terms of option volumes. Look at the records that we broke in January, which obviously means leverage. And these scenarios, while they're short-lived, are becoming more frequent, I think, for a variety of reasons. So the first is democratization of the, the stock mm-hmm. market, which honestly is fantastic. One of the biggest reasons for wealth inequality is the fact that wealthy people own the majority of financial assets. And we want more people to invest, not less. But the thing is, is there's obviously a difference between investing, speculation, and trading. The other considerations are also we have a plunge in the cost of trading, which makes higher turnover. This is becoming more frictionless to the average investor. Time and capital, COVID-19, the work from home, we have more screen time, which means more time paying to attention to the markets and more time trading. And there's also more leverage in the system due to this options activity. So I think the, the answer is fundamentals absolutely do matter. There are areas to invest in the market, but we expect higher volatility and don't ignore some of these technical pressures, which are going to be here to stay. John, what are fundamentals right now? <laughs> I'm serious. Like, What fundamentals are we even talking about at a certain oh, point? I, what, yes, Tom? I, I totally disagree. I think fundamentals are huge. Just well, but, but which fundamentals? I mean, how do you even evaluate price to earnings when you talk about yields as low as they you are? I mean, this is a serious question. Well, this is for Kristen, but you can't do it off a sharp ratio because you don't know where the risk-free return is. You have to plug in, John, a fictional number. Kristen, you get final word, please. Yeah, so I think fundamentals, where where do we find fundamentals and how are we thinking about that in portfolio construction? So the number one area where this comes into play is what we're calling overcoming financial repression. So this idea that yields are low for longer, right? Rates are are low for longer. And that means that you have your average investor looking at like a 60-40 portfolio. That's not going to achieve their objective. So that has to move up the risk spectrum in terms of the 70-30. And this is where fundamentals are super critical. So an area of the market where fundamentals look good from an entry point and also historical fundamentals are really strong is an area like global dividend growers. So returning our focus to global companies with strong free cash flow generation, strong balance sheets, you're basically achieving a yield of three to 4%, which given where rates are, is very attractive. And then when you think of the underperformance and some of this mean reversion that we talk about in markets, 
these stocks have lagged because of all of the high-flying COVID winners that have really benefited from that momentum. So that's an area where I think you're achieving attractive yield, and you're also there's a strong fundamental story that these companies are strong and here to stay. Kristen, great to catch up. Kristen Bidley there of City Private Bank. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.